Good afternoon, welcome to this week's edition of Navara FM, the second episode of Series 4, more cogent, combative and combobulated than ever. As is so frequently the case, I'm joined by sonneteer, leading lyricist of the left, James Butler at Pierce Penniless. Hi James. Hi. This week's show sees us looking at the Labour Party conference, hashtag LabConf1414. We're going to dissect some of the speeches, policies and reaction that have been going on in Manchester this week. That may sound incredibly boring. It quite possibly is. Before we continue, can I just <laughs> give a big Aaron, shout? Sell it. Before, before we can, well, people are listening, they're, they're already they're already tied in. Before we continue, can I just give a big shout out to the E15 mums at uh, mm-hmm. Focus E15, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you put hashtag E15 social centre hashtag E15 mums. You'll see them on Twitter. They're absolute legends. They've got over five thousand likes on Facebook. They're doing incredibly well. They're getting a lot of media attention. They are essentially doing an occupation over housing regeneration in Stratford. They're at the Carpenters' estate right next to the new Olympic Stadium. Um, they've just had their water cut off by mm-hmm. Sir Robin Wales, um, Mayor of Newham, and much-loved um, uh, politician of none less than Polly Toynbee. Good luck to them. Uh, like I said, if you can get down there, check it out. It's at the Carpenters' estate, Stratford, very close to Stratford International. They're on Facebook and Twitter. We did a piece yesterday on them for Navarro Wire. That was written by Oscar Webb. He was interviewing one of the E15 mums. It's great. Check that out. That's at wire.navarromedia.com. Back to this week's show. Can I just by saying that I'm almost mesmerised by just how talentless and boring the Shadow Cabinet is. I know that's a claim you could extend to many, many, many career politicians, or at least a generalisation. But what I've seen this week is really something. The speeches of the party leader at Miliband and Douglas Alexander as well were stunningly boring. Uh, Alexander's in particular. And I mean, we really are looking at an organisation here that has absolutely nothing to offer. We talk so many times about pasokization and so on, but you're looking at a, a really threadbare organisation in terms of not just resources, they've got no money, they're bankrupt, but also talent. Uh, I wrote something on Ed Miliband's quote-unquote generous offer on the minimum wage, being increased to £8 an hour by 2020. That's advice. Check that out if you can. Uh, I think we'll probably spend a a fair bit of today's show discussing that offer of £8 an hour in six years' time. Mm. Um, The short of it is that Ed is offering £8 an hour by 2020. What's interesting for me is that uh, Greens made an offer of £10 an hour by 2020 at their own conference earlier this month. Big question there is to what extent are they framing Labour's own agenda? We're going to talk about just how awful an offer this is. I mean, £10 isn't great, let's be honest, for the most, you know, radical party in England, quote-unquote. £8 is derisory. I mean, it's a Mm. poverty wage. Not for six years' time, but for now, isn't it, James? Mm -hmm. Yes. um, I mean, it is a a poverty wage now, and that that really should be understood. I mean, particularly... Uh, particularly for, for people living in major urban centres uh, and particularly for people living in London, of course. Um, the, the, one of the points I think is often forgotten about this from people who do earn more than this um, is that uh, the living wage is, uh, is something that one can just about live on. It's not something that uh, necessarily promotes flourishing uh, personal life. Um, I, I have to say, I, I always hate talking about the Labour Party. It's, sort of exercise in misery and despair, um, despite the fact that, you know, I, I don't actually expect much from the Labour Party. It's not as if I'm in a state of permanent disappointment with them. I, I sort of expect them to be the Labour Party, and sure enough, they fulfil that expectation month after month, year after year, decade after decade. Um, so it, it, in one sense, I think it's worth 
just sort of having a meta conversation first about why it actually is worth talking about the Labour Party because, uh, you know, so often... um, our conversation about this, or certainly conversation on the left about this, and certainly the left outside of Labour, um, it is it frames around this notion that, that one might expect Labour to do various things as if it were actually a left-wing organisation, which it isn't. Um, this sort of uh, continual performance of uh, outrage and betrayal on, 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 on certainly on parts of the communist left uh, is, I mean, it strikes me as, as you, know, you know, at some point you have to recognise that this is what the Labour Party is and does and then move on from there. Mm. Um, so what's useful about talking about the Labour Party is I think several things. One is, look, you know, I I don't necessarily find the the, the sort of machinations and uh, manipulations and sort of secret insider wonk stories of what's going on uh, in the in the in the upper Labour Party. Well, Charlie Wheeler gossip. uh, Well, no, I mean, I'm I mean, I you know, I just like gossip. That's you know, I'm going to take it from anywhere if I have to. But um, (laughs) (laughs) but look, there is there is something you know worth saying here, which is that, that this. Um, is actually less interesting than using these speeches as sort of modes of diagnoses about where the political class is at the yeah. moment. And that, that I think is useful and that I think is, is necessary. Mm. There's some other arguments that I think uh, uh, are important. And one of the things to say is that, that of course, the use of these as, as diagnoses is always going to have to be limited by, by the fact that, that you know, um, they are very carefully negotiated in that sense. They're, you know, there's, there's stuff that... You know, is performative in it, and you know the, the, there is an attempt, often I think, to, to move the political conversation one way or another by, by these conference speeches and whatever. More interesting to me, I think, is is this is is actually what runs through these speeches. You know, the, the things that that determine, in one sense, actually what they're going to be, i.e., the limits of what one as a Labour leader um, could possibly propose in a conference speech. Um, and, and in that sense, it's, I think it's useful to talk about, you know, what is often praised uh, by sort of the sort of, um, you know, uh, resident toadies and functionaries of Labour parties, Labour realism, um, you know, the, 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 the acceptance of certain axiomatic economic facts, the rejection of certain things that were held historically to be true by various members of the Labour Party, such as capitalism, probably quite a bad thing. Um, these kind of... Uh, uh, deter- or at least let's have a conversation about it. And then <laughs> but these that. kind of determining factors, I think, are, are very useful in, in, in sort of understanding what's going, going on here. The other thing, I think, um, that, is, that it is worth having a conversation about is, th- is this question about... Um, the, the distinctiveness of the Labour Party from other political parties, right? Um, so this is uh, the, the argument that, that circulates on the left, that the Labour Party is different because it bears the sort of oriflame of the sort of political expression of the working class via its mystical trade union link, uh, from which the working class sort of emanates its uh, desire by um, uh, being sort of repressed and uh, unable to participate in even a sort of false democracy within the the trade union movement. Um, And then this is magically uh, sort of deposited inside the brain of Ed Miliband. Uh, And so therefore the Labour Party is uh, an organ that mediates and articulates the the desires and sort of political uh, will of the working class. Worth noting here, of course, that the trade union movement is not, you know, necessarily and intrinsically an expression of class consciousness. Uh, people who advocate this view very rarely talk about uh, actually the fact that the, the trade union movement is a site of struggle and contestation in and of itself, that there is a uh, kind of 
uh, of sham democracy and sort of bureaucratization that afflicts quite profoundly the trade union movement, I think it, it's actually very difficult to to escape. And you know, again, I would I would argue that rather than reforming it, going outside of it is probably a better way uh, of proceeding. Uh, and so, you know, the, I'm, I want to leave this to one side, but I, you know, I will point out that the trade union movement has been a break on uh, really, you know, it, it, it can articulate actually extremely conservative and almost right wing things, precisely because it is interested in the pres, you know, in, in the preservation and reproduction of itself, um, as well as the sort of extremely limited uh, sort of preservation and reproduction uh, of certain kinds of employment. Mm, I mean. This is a critique of all organisations, is that you have this organisational drift, which is a deviation from the reasons why they are originally set up, to a maintenance of their competences, indeed an expansion of those competences and organisational resources. That's what all organisations do, from the police to the European Commission to political parties, you name it. The police do it. Perfect example of this is with water cannon. You know, you know, the police wouldn't ask for a water cannon if they didn't need them. Look, organisations love to maximise resources and competences. That's what they do. Um, and the right will happily tell you about that, about a, an abundance of organisations, not about government and how it maximises the competences of the violent police state that it is presiding over, you know, as we live amongst the dull explosion of the ruins of post-crisis, post-2008 European Western capitalism. Anyway, uh, also, regarding the TUC, we did a great show a couple of years ago, a kind of history of the TUC mm. um, and how they've historically performed the precise set of functions you're talking about. That goes hand in hand with the Labour Party and the choices it made during the course of the 20th century, which were, in short, to not be a party of the working class. Mm. Um, great example is how the TUC worked with the coalition government during the war to criminalise industrial action strikes were illegal it's a great example um francis o'grady you know, this is the new leader of the tuc after brendan barber uh, who used to go to cooking lessons with the governor of the bank of england mervyn king um i mean it's just a joke right i mean this is just literally a joke francis o'grady she was in the ft two weeks ago and she was calling on mark carney now, okay the leader of the tuc it's a toothless shambles of an organization right but you'd expect something. So what was she doing? She, was, she wasn't saying we did an increase in wages. She wasn't calling for increased uh, funding for the uh, NHS. She wasn't saying we did a campaign against outsourcing and the minimum wage and, you know, migration policy and the police. None of this. You know what she was calling for? She was imploring Mark Carnish. Please, Mark, please keep interest rates low. Keep them at 0.5%. Is that the best the working class can hope from the biggest organisation of industrial labour in the country? You know, it's an umbrella organisation has 6.5 million members all paying money to employ these people. And the best they can get is Francis Grady on her knees going, Mark, please, please make sure the mortgages don't go up. Please. In spite of the fact that we know that home ownership has gone down 10% in the last decade, it's going down. And, you know, this is not what her job is about. Her job is about increasing wages, increasing the share of the pie for the working woman and man in this country. It's not about keeping interest rates low for buy-to-let landlords, for, you know, uh, small business owners who, you know, pay their workers next to nothing and are supported by uh, in-work tax credits and housing benefit. That's not what they're there for. James? Yeah, look, I mean, th there's, there's obviously an argument to be had here, which is, which is essentially the argument between, um, you know, uh, 
radicals and reformists and it gets staged and restaged endlessly um, radicals are unrealistic um, reformists are uh, um, crass failures of vision and absence of competence um, and you know I mean very often I, I sort of you know I, I, I wince um, at some of the stuff that comes from both sides but you know there, there is particularly particularly this um it's kind of thing that has afflicted the sort of political managerial class um, precisely because they are political managers for for you know a good couple of decades now and we see this i think very clearly in this um uh, 35% strategy this rather um bleak and minimalist uh, you know, method of getting labour into in, into power, which is of course the most important thing. The most important thing, of course, is getting labour into power. And and this, I think, you know, is is I and mean, it's worth talking about actually the, the reversal of priorities here. The most, you know, is like if you, you know, the most important thing is for labour to be in power. Everything else can you know mm. become pendant on that. Mm. Um, is is not it more important <laughs> to do many of the other things and do it by any means necessary? Um, I you know I don't think labour taking power will necessarily um, achieve any of those. Things. But but this sort of rather bleak uh, uh, view, right, that there is um, essentially nothing changeable in a fundamental sense about the way that we live today. And this, I think, was actually noticeable throughout the conference, is that there is actually an extraordinarily limited uh, spectrum of uh, possibility here and this I mean you know this goes back to the way that these people have been educated this goes back to the sort of uh, uh, you know really dominant ideology among among you know all of this circle these days which is that that sort of um, basically the 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 descendant of Cold War liberalism um, it's it's this idea that that um, has was taken up by people uh, reading things like Arthur Schlesinger, uh, reading you know the Vital Center and things like this. And there's this absolute constraint of, uh, of political possibility. I mean, it really it reaches its expression in the United States with Clinton, um, who in fact uh, references Schlesinger in, in a speech, and it's actually quite interesting. Ish, uh, <laughs> but 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 there, but there is this sort of um, a contraction of horizons with 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 this stuff. So so th- there are basically, and you know, I mean, it's, it's the thing to say here is that this goes in two ways. One is to do with the um, uh, 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 interpretation, the inflection of interpretation by sort of uh, 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 the the Labour Party's court philosophasters, like uh, 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 you know these sort of. Uh, uh, nonsense merchants turn sort of dung into brown gold and you know weave emperor's new clothes Um, and of course Polly Toynbee sits at their head Um, I mean this is the I mean she wrote this extraordinary piece imagine being Polly Toynbee and being confronted with you know this rather um, miserable and uninspiring bland hopeless conference and going um, okay how do I spin this to the advantage of the Labour Party and you go well you know um, simply these failures of imagination are signs of political realism Um, you know uh, uh, uneducated people who are not me look for political fears and inspiration and various other things that one might think would be useful or hopeful um, this is wrong and these people are idiots what they really want is is more um, bland and arid professionalism uh, what you must do is be un, you know completely uh, un, uninvested in any kind of vision uh, and you must sort of uh, uh, bring together all these disparate groups uh, including sort of bosses and landlords um, who are really the natural constituency of the Labour Party certainly half of them make it up these days um, 
so the, so she sort of writes this thing going like you know okay blandness and um, uh, lack of vision these are actually signs of progress in the Labour Party and certainly signs of the influence of uh, progress um, so this is I mean this is reflected in another way I think in um, you know in these sort of promises that uh, you know or pledges or whatever they were that that, that Miliband was making this um, these uh, so this thing on uh, you know, so you mentioned one of them, which is the the minimum wage rise. Yeah. Um, the the other thing, of course, is um, you know this, this stuff about house building, I and mean, we're going to make house building a top priority um, and double the number of first time buyers. Um, <laughs> no, but this is great. We're going to build as many homes as the UK needs by twenty twenty five. We're gonna we're going to do the bare minimum that is necessary to uh, to, to 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 keep up with demand. In eleven years' time, but look, the, the the vision the vision here is 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 interesting. I think because what what it is 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 not to challenge the notion itself of home ownership, which remember is like a, is is a historically relatively recent phenomenon that that you have the the rise of the notion of a property owning democracy being axiomatic to the way in which British society is functional and structured. Post war, yeah, yeah. Um, this is this is not something that is that is a given. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, I, so I mean, it's you know, and obviously it's not working very well, is it? Mm. Um, so what you what you want to do is then bring more people into that. Like this is you know, rather sort of preposterous. I mean, there is also this this kind of absolutely bizarre thing about the NHS, you know, um, it, which is is of course really mealy mouthed because uh, there, there is very little commitment to, uh, to to really rolling back some of the profound changes that we're seeing in the NHS under this government. Which even, um, can I just add, Burnham actually explicitly said, you know, he said that the NHS will not be obviously the exclusive provider of, of health services, it'll be always the prefer, prefer, preferred, excuse me, preferred provider. He was very clear about that. This guy is the doyen of the Labour left. He's seen as, I suppose, the saviour of the NHS um, amongst what remains of the Labour left and their activist base. Um, and yeah, that's precisely it. They're not talking about changing outsourcing mm. and the involvement of market actors in NHS provision. But what it doesn't Nonsense. do is is accept the historical failure of the Labour Party to do this stuff properly. It doesn't. It, it doesn't um, articulate and repudiate one of the real problems in the NHS, which is the influence or legacy of PFI building. Yeah, well, this this um, he, Burnham, I think, talked about this in a PFI hospital in, in Manchester, yeah. which is not going to be paid off until twenty forty five. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and it's still lost on these people. This is what I don't get. It's just completely lost on. But NHS polled really well, though. Seventy-one percent of mm. the public supports Labour on the NHS. You know, these I think what's it? Yeah, it's eight pledges. That was the favourite. Seventy yeah, percent of, yeah, of yeah. those polled agreed with it. I don't like polls, but seventy-one percent is pretty compelling. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, the problem here, of course, is is you know, you know, is that what's the next sentence? Like, you know, okay, it's. The NHS is good, and we will preserve it. Okay, what I want to what I want to know mm. is how you plan to do that while accepting the things that you accept. And this is, you know, this is really a fundamental thing. And you know, one of, I think perhaps one of the things that we need to talk about is is what goes on sort of behind the scenes and not at the the the, the conference, not at this sort of you know slightly bizarre gathering of of people, because because this is you know it, it, there's something more profound behind these pledges. Mm. That that hasn't changed or that is stuck between sort of these two tensions or like a deeply contradictory view. And I think, you know, I mean, it's what you've said before that Miliband is probably the most left-leaning 
of um, likely Labour leaders in, in now ever, or in the yeah. future. Yeah. I, I think you're probably right. And I think, it, you know, isn't that telling? Is, is it not time for, you, for, for people with, you know, even the remotest semblance of a conscience to jack it in, dump this party? But, um, you know, the, so these, these lines in... in um, in Miliband's speech, this um, uh, you know, this desire to move from an ideology that, that uh, we wouldn't use the word ideology, uh, this, this idea that uh, of a society based on the principle that you're on your own to uh, one of togetherness. What is not said in togetherness is like who is togetherness? Like what kind of togetherness is this togetherness? Because who, I think, who is your collective subject? And 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 and. You know who is your collective subject? That question actually matters because you know it affects the society that you build from that collective su- subject. And this, you know, of course, is is I. You know, I you 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 will probably disagree with me on this, but I do detect the sort of uh, stalking hand of Morris Glasman. You know, all throughout this stuff. Um, you know, sort of eminence grease of eminence greases, and you sort of right, crypto or you know, really just explicitly racist sort of one nation Labourite. Um, you know, I'm a revolting man actually. Um, and this, of course, like flows through John Crudus as well, um, who is now who's the chair of the uh, Labour Policy uh, Unit, right? I mean, he's the coordinator for. For Labour yeah, policy, they've they've, they've, um, they've jettisoned Liam Byrne. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> choice between a rock and a hard place, really, isn't it? <laughs> um, but um, so so this so this guy is you know in, in charge of Labour policy. And, you know, it's of course he's not you know he's not Paulie Ray. He doesn't not know his history. He's not you know completely uh, bereft of uh, uh, you know, grounding in 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 the history of the Labour movement. But what strikes me is that, that in Miliband and in Glasman and in uh, Crudus, you, you detect this fondness for certain portions of the affect of socialism. So togetherness, so, you know, this, this mm, uh, co- collectivity. Um, but without the thing that animates it, which is, of course, social strife, which is the, the division of currently existing society into classes and recognising the antagonism between those classes structures it. And, you know, without uh, recognising that antagonism, how you actually you know, go on and deal with that is a rather difficult thing. Instead, it gets re-instantiated in the form of the nation, you know, one nation labour. I mean, this is... Yeah, I reiterate this every time we talk about this, but this is a conservative phrase. Your position between, you know, an analysis that at base recognises that society is structured um, in classes of people that have mutually antagonistic and conflicting and irreconcilable differences was fundamental to the kind of stuff that is appropriated by Glasman and Crudus and Miliband for this sort of uh, uh, nation-state-based sort of togetherness. I mean, mm. it's just revolting, isn't it? it should, these words and these references should turn to ashes in their mouths. I mean, I've got, I've got there's three things I, I want to say, and I need to say that because I want to remember, I want to say all of them, really. First, Crudus. Crudus supported David Miliband over Ed in 2010. He was actually disgusted Ed running because, you know, so key to his politics, nation, family, identity, he thought it was fratricidal, quote unquote. He said this for Ed to run. Um, He wrote the speech which David Miliband gave the day after he lost um, or the Saturday after he lost. Um, So Crudder shouldn't be necessarily seen too close to Ed Miliband, uh, nor should Glasman. But these are people that are very ensconced within the Labour leadership more broadly so yeah they're there um Crudus's thing about nation family identity is the big sort of cornerstones of 21st century politics um yeah i mean they could be construed and this is not 
uh, hyperbolic um, as um, as a very much a contemporary variant of fascism. I mean, that that is literally what it seems to me analytically. Um, I'd love to get the guy in to talk about it um, because I don't think he self-identifies as a fascist. I think the things that are coming out of his mouth border on it, to be quite honest. Secondly, Chaka Umana. Chaka Umana said, you know, in a very sort of Birgitte Neuberg way, he goes, politics is all about compromise. You know, politics is all about compromise. Look, this is my two bobs worth. Politics is not about compromise, right? Politics is about getting your way with people who don't agree with you. That is politics. It's war by other means. It's not, I mean, so it's persuasion and it's, well, or it can be, you know, it can be about more than that. You obviously don't want it to be about more than persuasion. It can be about force. Force ranges from the withdrawal of one's labour to, yes, you know, war, civil, civil war, riot, insurrection, revolution. That's politics. Politics is about getting your way. It's not about compromise. Politics is about how people with different understandings of the good life or different views, how those views are mediated within a social context. That's politics. It is not about compromise. If you enter a situation where you have a political enemy and you go into that situation saying, I'm going to compromise, they get their way. That's how it works. Mm -hmm. Because they're not saying, I'm going to compromise. Nigel Farage does not say, I'm going to compromise. You know, This guy, the Marxi, the front of Nigel Farage, you've got the three main party leaders going to Scotland saying, we'll have these Devo Max. Day after the no no vote wins, Nigel Farage goes, they haven't got any mandate to say that. This is ridiculous. They can sling their hook. You know, he's entirely right. They had no democratic mandate to make these um, promises of Devo Max and more devolution to Scotland. So politics is not about compromise, Chucker. Again, another guy, another person. I would love to get on the show, love to get on Navarro TV and expand his mm, several inches because you know i think we could really take him to school you know this guy was 31 when he entered parliament he has he has the, the sort of the, the 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 political charisma of of uh, you know a jelly deal he has the kind of intellectual capability capacity the ability for critical reflection of you know i mean he is genuinely one of the most dull bland non-entity people i think i've ever seen in party politics that really is saying something so that, that so we've gone on We've gone on um, Crudus. We've gone on Umana. Politics is about compromise. No, it isn't. It's about getting your way when people don't agree with you. Third, Ed Miliband. Who is he? Right, who is Ed Miliband? God alone knows. Well, look, you were saying about how these people are all the same. Of the five people that ran for Labour leader in 2010, four were men. Four were white. Four had been special advisors. Four had been ed- educated at Oxbridge. Four, uh, three, two of them... David and Ed had gone to the United States to do postgraduate work, Harvard and MIT, right? So yeah, this is not, you, you could not have less choice if you wanted to. You know, Ed Miliband joked that his mum, Marion Miliband, was voting for Diane Abbott, bless her, you know. But she probably did. I mean, she probably, <laughs> well, Diane Abbott was going around afterwards saying that she was the, the, the choice of Mama Miliband. That's quite funny, but probably true, yes. Ed Miliband, you know, this guy, until he was 40, was living in a flat above his brother in Primrose Hill, which his parents bought in the 1960s. He doesn't know what it is. He literally does not know what it is to work. He doesn't know the price of milk. He I'm not taking the mickey here. You know, he probably knows these things less than Nigel Farage, actually. I mean, that's really saying something. This guy could not be more insulated from the world of work, the world of pay, the world of housing, social struggle. It's, it's absolutely beyond me how this guy's seen, has been seen as 
you know, a left solution. By the way, I don't think he's actually one inch to the left of his brother. I mean, I think they were both more left than people go. I think Dave was more left than people gave it credit, credit for. And I think Ed is far more right than people give him credit for. At the end of the day, these are, like you say, sort of labour realists. And they don't question mm. the fundamentals of capitalism, politics, society, culture. James? Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, of course, we should, should be reticent about... You know, Thinking that uh, the, either the the the, the direction of, of um, policy formulation or uh, uh, sort of just political constitution is dictated merely by the personality of a few people, but but the fact of of the the homogeneity of these personalities does in turn reflect that that there is a certain um, direction and a certain uh, uh, pool from which these people are drawn. Um, that is not particularly controversial point. I, I did wonder, in fact, if, if you know, that at some point um, the Miliband family story would end like some sort of Greek tragedy with, um, you know, the ancient matriarch sort of uh, descending and sort of uh, possibly Medea-like and killing her children. Um, but uh, apparently not. Um, she's still alive and kicking, apparently. She's yeah, she very, is, uh, um, yeah, 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 yeah. A very healthy older woman. Certainly, well, certainly to the left of both of her children. Um, not hard. The 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 thing I, I I'm sorry I'm just thinking about the Millibands. It's really absolutely actually completely revolting, isn't it? Um, the the um, yes, where was I? Uh, <laughs> okay, yeah. So this uh, the other thing that that is operative here is this uh, the concern about uh, so-called English alienation, right? And this you you sent me uh, a YouTube clip of a Jon Snow interview of Ed Miliband yeah. um, where he was sort of um, Snow was confronting him by saying like, look these people are alienated from politics and they don't like you very much um, basically and uh, uh, Miliband responds like oh well people have been very receptive to me and Snow's like well I asked them and they don't like you very much and he's like oh. and they actually you know got almost irritated almost showed some emotion and sort of of course repressed um, but but the, the difficulty here is that, that it's true and it's objectively true and, and and I, you know, I actually think it's quite important, and I think it's quite good that people find him sort of, you know, insincere or unrelatable um, for all of those reasons, of course, that you expressed. Um, and and this this just strikes me as being like it's just an obvious obvious truth. But the to talk about you know, and one of the things that has been very concerning in 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 these speeches and these references to English alienation, certainly in the period uh, subsequent to the referendum vote, has been, you know, what is concerning about this is that when you unleash words like English alienation mm. into, you know, the political atmosphere, you very rapidly lose control of what you do with them. Um, now, I, 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 I absolutely have no uh, uh, doubt that this, that the notion of English alienation which is perhaps one step away from the words white working class, um, is something that descends ultimately again from this sort of um, complex of um, crypto-racist, uh, you know, blue labour people. I think that the, probably the genealogy of this uh, notion of English alienation works down from there. And nonetheless, there is, of course, uh, an alienation and sort of alienation from both political process and from you know, general social life that's operative in England. But there's no more operative and no more distinctive uh, by virtue of its Englishness than it is anywhere else in the world that people sort of uh, experience alienation. Can, can uh, I respond to that? I mean, I would take, I would disagree with that because, look, in 1980, the British trade union had 12 million members. It was probably the most 
powerful trade union movement, certainly in Western Europe. You know, industrial action used to be called the English disease. Mm -hmm. um, you had this huge, huge movement embedded in civil society. The same was also true, actually, before Thatcher of the Conservative Party. Yeah. It was very much embedded within civil society. If you have a kind of Gramscian understanding of civil society, these institutions like schools, churches, and uh, faith-based organisations, and so on and so forth. That's changed. And you've now got the Conservative Party has less than 100,000 members. The Labour Party has fewer than 150,000 members. Now, you compare that to even the Partito Democratico in Italy, the centre-left party. Now, hold on. That is, listen, that is more post-ideological, believe it or not, than even the Labour Party. And that's still got half a million members. The Partito Popular in Spain has 800,000 members. The Conservative Party, the average age is, I believe, 64, has fewer than 100,000 members, okay? So you've got, I think there is, there are obviously, there are always things that are specific to local contexts, and I think that's one of them, which is the death of very large organisations that were embedded in civil society within which most people could participate in politics, what James Wilson calls amateur politics in the book called The Amateur Democrat, which is about politics as something of interest rather than a technical vocation or something one wishes to have as a job. I think that those organisations which permitted those kinds of discussions, that kind of deliberation, have broadly disappeared from British public life, with the exception perhaps of the SNP north of the border now. No, in which well, has, I mean, we'll see how long that lasts. Well, it has. It has. The SNP has, in every Scottish constituency, has 50,000 members now. There are 50, over, around 50 constituencies in Scotland. It has 1,000 members per constituency. There is nothing, nothing, nothing like that in England and Wales. Absolutely nothing. There's something similar in, with Sinn Féin in, in, parts of, in parts of Ireland. But there, uh, there's no other political party in Britain that has that. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I really, I, I actually think this is probably quite a temporary membership spike that you're seeing. In oh, I'm sure, I'm sure it will split in all sorts, um, but it's going to be there for a couple of years. The, my, my point about alienation, however, is not, isn't, is not to deny that these are facts and, and that these facts are in some degree distinctive to the makeup of politics here. But what is, there is nothing distinctively English about the alienation experience, right? It no, is not because people Sorry, are I, English I that they are, yeah, yeah, I thought that, you that they are alienated. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and that, I think, but, but, but that, of course, is at work when that phrase is released into the, sort of the general, um, you know, political conversation. And suddenly the idea about English alienation starts to tie back to those old blue ideas about immigration and the other and the foreigner and how we need to clamp down on, um, you know, and let's celebrate British jobs for British workers and everything nauseating and reactionary <laughs> about that um so so that i mean that that is where that is going i think mm -hmm. and you know and this is the you know always rather difficult to 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 articulate this right which is to, is to say that you know that, that these terms are contestable but they're probably not contestable on their own grounds right you have to advocate something uh, that accounts for the fact of this alienation without actually uh, compromising with this notion of nationalism, which is, tech, you know, a, a political uh, almost ontology that is profoundly different and that is not a, a, a really uh, a way of thinking about the world that is, that is particularly conducive to any kind of like historically left-wing goal. Nation nationalism. Yeah. Um, you wouldn't say what black nationalism. No, I would say that nationalism as an ideology is not historically. Um, or empirically conducive to any left-wing goals. Sure, I mean, I mean, it's for me. I mean, uh, there's a lot of people that sort of saying that UKIP and the SNP are the same thing. I just think that's just complete nonsense. I, I, I agree with you. I don't think that a lot of the goals that people voting for yes 
you know, I think they're just as achievable in or out of the union. Hold on, let me finish. I think they're just as achievable in or out of the union. I don't look. I my father's Iranian. People go, oh my god, you're a person of colour. You know, <laughs> what about sort of third world nationalism? Look, Iranian nationalism is more racist and anti-Semitic than any of the European nationalisms, right? And they can be from the Middle East and they can be brown. Believe me, it's violent, just as Japanese nationalism was. Let me finish. Hold on. I just want to say one thing, which is this: for some people, nationalism means self-government, the nation, especially smaller nations, which probably are appropriate as political entities I think we wish to govern ourselves the idea of self-government is inherently tied up with the history of democracy and you know so rightly or wrongly people that want an independent Scotland see that as an appropriate or a more appropriate way of self-government the discussion then has to be well it isn't you don't, and you say that it isn't but mm. not on the basis of oh you're nationalist therefore you're racist I think a lot of those people think of it as a more appropriate mode of self-government it's nothing to do with I could go up to Scotland and go oh, I'm Scottish tomorrow and join the SNP that's not the same as me join, joining the BNP it's yes, different of course but that, that does you know the argument is not that the UKIP and the SNP are the same the argument is that I've they are that different from a lot of people well, listen to I mean, this week. I mean that's well, I mean that's idiocy, isn't it? Um, the, I mean the the argument is surely that there are modes and different modes of nationalism. Um, very few of which can be said to be even useful to a left-wing project. Look, there is a complicated history here, of course, and you know I'm wary of talking <laughs> or making judgments about you know how you resist colonization yep. and empire. Yep. Um, yeah, and I think it's, there's there's a rather sort of glib response to this stuff, often from particularly from the libertarian left, about like you know, um, oh, if I were in that situation, well, I I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't join a, a you know a nationalist or a national liberation mm. movement. Um, <laughs> historically, where where people have tried not to do that, they've been you know killed. So you know yeah. the, the 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 reasons that, that these ideologies play out are, are are you know historically complex and they're not really served or uh, you know justly addressed by a sort of you know glib libertarian sentiment. However, in this case, I you know I I think when you talk about um nationalism within the capitalist heartlands um, and and certainly Scotland and England are both capitalist heartlands um, you really do have to to to, to distinguish them mm. from nationalisms on the periphery or on the imperial frontier they, they are rather different cases anyway yeah to, so let's let's move back to to the Labour Party um, and and let's talk about in fact you know what this is going to happen because it's quite likely that Labour will be in power at the next election. I, I, I regard it as a possibility, although that prediction is looking less, <laughs> you know, less credible. It's much harder to make these 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 predictions at the moment because you know it's obvious that 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 um, uh, you know, this, uh, Miliband creature will attempt to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. It's a, something that the Labour Party have been historically very good at. Um, you know, we could be looking at a 1992 situation. Um, so yeah, that's the possibility. Uh, regardless of this, um, you know, you have this sort of uh, 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 thing circulating after after this conference speech, going, "Oh God, isn't it bizarre that um, Ed Miliband is so incompetent that he forgot to talk about the deficit in his conference speech?" Um, this is, of course, a, a refocusing of, of, of uh, you know, attention on an inconvenient fact to one of personal failing. This actually does pretty well for the Labour Party, and certainly does quite well for the shadow chancellor because if he actually had mentioned the deficit he'd have had to start talking about actually what Labour is going to have to do after it gets into power which is continue and indeed harshen quite a lot of the austerity um, that we're we're experiencing now. Yeah, I mean this is... uh We've had a lot of the people north of the border going as kind of we are the forty five percent. You know, the probably the elect 
the electoral kind of strategy of the Miliband campaign will be, you know, we are the 35% <laughs> is that they are going to go for this 35% of the vote. And the point I think, I, I think it may have been purposeful to not talk about the deficit and to talk about immigration, because he knows they know this would alienate their core vote, it would alienate that 35%, even if there's a lot of sort of ribbing and joking being made about it right now. It's a very smart thing for him to avoid the deficit. Ed Balls didn't, by the way. Ed Balls was very clear, and he will be the Chancellor about what he will and won't do after after any potential Labour government comes to office next May. Why are Labour so screwed after 2015 if they do form the next government? I'm just going to give you a few, a few reasons why they are screwed, why we're screwed, and why British politics is going to be so interesting. First of all, interest rates are going to go up almost straight after the next general election. Mark Carney was hired, basically on an astronomical salary to not increase interest rates until after the next general election. That's a fact, right? Secondly, as you've rightly pointed out, public sector cuts after 2015, specifically 2015 to 2025, and this is Mm. why Miliband laid out a 10-year strategy, are going to be huge. And the 2015 to 2020 phase is going to be much, 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 much worse than anything we've seen after 2015. Uh, since 2010. I think that will essentially mean the death of the Labour Party. That's my personal view. I think they're already... I mean, like I say, in terms of resources, in terms of a grassroots, they're almost dead. I mean, at least, you know, the Conservative Party has people off, you know, donating millions of pounds. They have something. Um, it has the city. I mean, Labour really does have very little. I think you could genuinely see some more unions leaving the Labour Party, losing donors, and maybe setting up new projects, maybe lots of new independents, all sorts of things. I'm not going to speculate as to what or won't happen. But yeah, those cuts are going to be very, 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 very dramatic. Thirdly, wages are going to keep on falling. Real wages are going to keep on falling, or or at best they're not going to increase. That is nowhere else more evident than in this offer of eight pounds an hour by 2020 that would be today eight pounds an hour today which is fifteen thousand six hundred pound a year is about 58 percent of the median wage relative poverty is 60 percent right so they're offering today a poverty wage um as it's technocratically understood today not in six years time so their presumptions their promises their political aspirations are based on real wages staying the same not going up fourthly budget deficit which is of course tied in with the fact that more cuts are going to have to happen budget deficit good article in the economist about this a couple of days ago about britain's budget deficit guardian talked about it as well i'm going to quote from the guardian here so far the deficit this year is bigger than the year before and it might actually be going up so this is from the guardian earlier this week Um, The Chancellor is on course to miss his deficit-cutting target this year, according to the latest figures, giving me a headache in the run-up to the 2015 election. Weak tax receipts pushed borrowing to £11.6 in August, excluding bank bailouts. Borrowing in the fiscal year so far from April to August was £45.5 billion, billion higher than the same period last year. Economists said that the poor start of the year had put at risk Treasury's official target of reducing borrowing to £95 billion from £105 billion. So at the moment, it's on, on, it's on target to be above £105 billion. Howard Archer, Chief UK Economist at IHS Global Insight, said Osborne had a mighty tough job on his hands. Um, Martin Beck, quote, August's public finance data suggests that deficit reduction remains a grindingly slow process. The chances of the Chancellor enjoying a fiscal windfall from a strong economic recovery in time for the statement are looking slim. Samuel Toombs, final quote, Senior UK Economist at Capital Economics, August's public finance figures show that the coalition is still struggling to bring borrowing down as quickly as planned in March budgets. If this trend is maintained in the remaining seven months of the fiscal year, then borrowing will come in at £105 billion. So It's the same as last year. So, look, when they came to office in 2010, the coalition said they would eliminate the deficit by 2015. It would be eliminated. 
it's £105 billion, right? And again, you know, it's not just Ed Miliband that's not talking about this. You won't find smart comment about this anywhere in the UK. The budget has not the budget deficit has not moved. Ed Balls in his speech this week was saying we're going to inherit a £75 billion deficit. This is just complete nonsense. You're not. You know, so he's saying, well, we'll have to do this and this because we're inheriting. You're inheriting a £105 billion deficit, mate. You know, so, you know, it's just complete. It's not just from Osborne to most journalists, who of course, are really ensconced with their favourite politicos and they're always in their pockets to the shadow cabinet. You know, nobody is admitting the size of the task here. Um, the truth is, after 2015, right? Taxes will have to go up. They will have to go up. The reason why the deficit's not going down is because tax receipts haven't gone up, even though growth is up. Taxes have to go up. Cuts will have to get worse. Interest rates have to go up, right? That is, I'm not being a sort of, sort of millenarian or, you know, a, a sceptic. This, this is an empirical inevitability. This will happen, okay? So what does that mean? It means you've got huge huge tax increases they'll be have to be across the board you're going to have massive public sector cuts right that's going to really draw loads of demand out of the economy so growth will go down as well and interest rate is going to have to go up so if wages stay flat rates go up taxes go up cuts to public services go up what does that mean it means massively decimated growth. You may have a spiral then in terms of demand. It means the standard of living goes down. It means that fewer people can afford mortgages. It means that fewer people can afford housing. Housing benefits cut. You know, it's a really, by 2020, you have a really dreadful scenario in your hand, hands. And that's why Ed Miliband is saying, look, we need a 10-year sort of window here. Because maybe by 2025, maybe, maybe the deficit might be gone by 2025. Maybe cuts can stop by 2025. Maybe interest rates may have peaked by 2025. You know, it's going to get a lot, lot worse for the next 10 years, at least before it gets better. So, you know, that's it really. I mean, it's going to get a lot, lot worse. Um, And yeah, the Labour Party could preside over an austerity after next May, which is going to be far more intense in terms of wages, in terms of cuts, in terms of tax, um, in terms of interest rates than anything we've seen so far, James. Yeah, um, I mean, so one of the things I think that it's worth saying that the independence uh, referendum and and everything leading up to it, uh, and certainly the discussions that I saw within Scotland seemed to suggest to me that people were more or less convinced that this is the direction of travel of British society as a whole, as dictated from Westminster, uh, and therefore a lot of the, the the impetus within within that was to to, to divest from this sort of disastrous way of reorganising society that w- would be shared by either Labour or uh, the Conservatives. It wouldn't put much faith in Alex Salmon doing anything that different. Um, what is interesting about this is that uh, what a sort of Labour social programme or political programme after the election is going to look like. I mean, it seems to me that it's going to look like this sort of austerity with a human face. Um, you, you know, like this kind of, you know, look, we're, we're, we're cutting things, but we're doing it for your own good. And, you know, it's, it's you know, jam tomorrow. Well, not tomorrow, 10 years time, actually, possibly 15. Um, but don't worry, you'll probably be dead by then, so it doesn't matter. Um, you know, and, and again, this is one of those moments where you think, okay, like, what's what's worth doing is is understanding the direction that the people who are thinking about this are going. You know, one is the the sort of right wing sort of uh, think tank network, which is sort of figuring out ways to make the sort of uh, political the, the normative political 
conversation exactly about how you cut in order to to uh, cut the deficit. <coughs> Essentially, however, I mean, if you if you read Crudus and if you read all this kind of stuff, you you you, you really realise that these people know um, and believe that that austerity is you know going to continue and going to happen. There's no two ways about it. Um, what, what this is going to you know, part of what this is about, however, as far as these people are concerned, is that there has been a basic. Uh, collapse and uh, destruction of civil society, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And again, this is this kind of Crudus vibe that... um uh, institutions, institutions of civic society are intrinsic goods. Um, that that you know these institutions are unnecessary and important. Um, and and so you have this kind of uh, this notion that is floated around, which again sounds like the affect of, of socialism, uh, right? The contributory pin- principle. You know that sounds good. All people contributing to society—that's a good thing. What it actually means when it's spun by the the sort of uh, you know by the Labour Party and by sort of the the great gurus of the Labour right, um, which is most of the party these days um it, it is of course that this 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 conservative big society thing is 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 actually a good a good thing it's well they just, think they came up with it they do indeed don't they yeah i mean god they really are revolting they think oh they um, stole our ideas you yeah know. and so it's it's but but the inherent evil of the conservative party meant that they were unable to institute them or something i'm not entirely clear about this argument but the argument is is based on on the notion that society itself is broken right and this is why you get sort of this uh you know, oh, the EDL are understandable from Glasman. Um, the uh, the the riots were what uh, hedonistic and nihilistic on from Crudus and his sort of um, you know, Myrmidon uh, Rutherford, who is this weird sort of uh, obsession with masculinity and, and maleness. Yeah, um, a bit weird. I mean, I mean, political people generally are a bit weird, but these people are particularly creepy and weird. Um, you know, and and therefore it is a given that everyone is going to have to do more uh, with less. Therefore, we need to reinstitute these kind of civil society organisations. They need to, you know, take uh, take on the duties of, of the state um, and more or less function by themselves in this sort of like voluntaristic kind of way. Um, this sort of uh, a, a recrudescence of Victorian philanthropy. Um, I mean, so you either have, have people ending up in this sort of like disastrous place where where actually what you're going to have to do is uh you know go hat in hand to these charities and go god please can you help me pay my rent or can you help my children eat or can you please like uh help this infected sore that i have on my arm but my insurance won't pay out for you know my arm to be you know whatever could you please not amputate it and try and heal it no okay well i'm gonna lose an arm then um so this kind of thing or you have sort of the 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 influx of these sort of large abstract capitalist organizations such i like the service provision organizations such as Serco or G4S mm-hmm. taking over the yeah, yeah. function and role of the state. So this is what you know. This is what a Labour government will look like. Uh, but the most important thing here is exactly this notion, and we will see it reanimated. This idea of the contributory principle, mm-hmm. which in actual terms means that if you don't put in, if you don't work hard, if you don't work, uh, then you're getting nothing from the state. You will be cut off. And that's that's where it's going. Because, you know, the, 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 labor, the labor vibe here has been like the compulsory jobs guarantee, the compulsory volunteering or whatever, bizarre uh, sort of uh, locution. Workfare uh, plus. Basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that alongside, you know, um, basically... Um, he who shall not work, neither let him eat. Uh, you know, this, this phrase 
place from um, St. Paul and then Lenin uh, has sort of transmogrified into this sort of bizarre uh, fetishistic notion of, 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 of work uh, being the, the, the one thing that makes you humanly valuable and if you're not going to do it well we need to sort of rebuild civil society and if you're not going to do it then you're out on the street and we're not going to help you. This thing about the, the big society, civil society, and how that's going to take up a lot of the slack from the state in terms of social reproduction. What I mean social reproduction, I mean the stuff you're just talking about, people living, you know, uh, medical care, elderly care, child care, education, these kinds of things. You know? So the, the, the expectations that civil society organisations, the third sector, will take up the slack from things that the state was previously doing. Uh, you know, and a lot of people go, like, a lot of Tories go, oh, oh, this is anarchism. Why don't you like it? You know. Well, I'll tell you why I don't like it, mate. Because, you know, take the 15 months, right? They have just occupied a space which is eminently livable, right? And what have Newham Council done? I was there last night. Newham Council, there's a, there's a place, there's an estate right next to where they've occupied. Newham Council are using council taxpayers' money to employ security guards to ensure that nobody cracks these council houses that have been locked up. Right? They are spending money doing that. Now, why are they doing that? Because we live under what is called capitalism. What do you have to do under capitalism? You have to use the apparatus of the state to ensure a certain set of relations, which ensure the commodity form. Right? As an, you know, the process has been happening for a long time. Capitalism hasn't been profitable in Western Europe and North America. They had to ensure that a certain set of social goods, these are increasingly large, and it's increasingly the case, increasingly evident, have to become increasingly subject to the commodity principle. And that is backed up with violent force, coercion. Right? That's why the big society is not anarchism, you muppets. And I mean, I, I've had a few Tories spatting, you know, I'm secretly an anarchist. And I, was like, I don't think you are, mate. You know, you know. Oh, why don't we? We should, we've got so much intellectual terrain. You know, we, we share. I was like, no, we don't. You know. Um, so that's why it's not anarchism. And it, it is precisely what you're talking about. Is it's saying oh, civil society can do these things. And actually, I think civil society can do those things. I think humans can do those things. But where you have a context where the commodity logic, capitalism, and the social relations it necessitates are imposed with that kind of force, that kind of violence, it's impossible. And like you say, you die. And that's the reduction to what Agama calls bare life, right? Because you can't try and exist beyond this set of relations or principles. This is really important. My final point, we've got just over five minutes left. We'll... We'll conclude shortly. Listening to Navarra FM Resonance one hundred four point four FM London, London's number one radio station. Ed Miliband, I think his second job in cabinet was Minister of the Third Sector, um, and he wrote the twenty ten manifesto, which was really big on social entrepreneurs. So look, this guy, I know, I know, I know, you know. But this guy is going to be the guy to. This is going to be. You, you ain't seen nothing yet with this big society shtick spiel. Just like you haven't seen anything yet with austerity cuts and declining. Um, stands of living. James, a few thoughts. Yeah, I mean, basically the thing to, to I think, take away from this show is is to recognise, one, like the, the, the material influences on uh, the direction of, uh, of a Labour government, Labour government in waiting, are, are not sort of the, 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 the occasional speeches from, uh, you know, uh, union delegates on, on the conference floor. They're not um, those occasional sort of uh, backroom sort of uh, packed out probably but um, you know uh, largely uninfluential meetings where Owen Jones sort of evokes 
uh, the ghostly spirit of Tony Benn to come and um, beam us all up in the socialism mothership. Um, that that is not where Labour policy is formed. It's formed uh, a long time before this stuff ever comes to the conference floor. Uh, it, you know, it's it's really really important to know and understand this that that like that the fundamental mechanism of the Labour Party, um, you know, the, the the thing that gets defended by the Labour left, this sort of uh, you know nominally democratic link between the trade union movement and you know Labour Party membership. Is, is is broken and is in fact dead. Mm. Um, so so you know instead you have this sort of um, you know uh, uh, again what I called that that sort of affect of socialism without social contestation, and that is what structures um, the the Labour Party now is this sort of desire uh, to reconstitute. Um, you know, niceness and togetherness uh, under the sort of heel and uh, uh, boot of big business. Uh, so, so this is it. This is what we will see. Um, the 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 rebirth of this sort of contributory principle and this notion um, basically that that uh, uh, you know your ability to survive. Um, will depend on how hard you've worked for, for you know, and how, how you've uh, expressed your sort of uh, worthiness in uh, uh, your willingness to sweat for, what is it, you know, £8 an hour, uh, you know, if that. Uh, that. That's what a future Labour government looks like. It looks like cuts. It looks like an insulting wage rise. Uh, it looks like being in hoc to uh, the great privatizers, these large stacks of abstract capital that uh, wish to take over the very basic functions of human existence and social life. Sodexo, Serco, uh, Capita, Capita, G4S. Uh, that's what it's going to look like. That's what a Labour government will do for you. Payback 2015. <laughs> hashtag. You've got hashtag Payback 2015, James. We've got two minutes left, right? Um, yeah, so I guess, well, what does this all mean? It, we, it's good to have a little bit of foresight about what happens next. I think one of the big mistakes I saw in France, for instance, when Hollande won, well, big mistakes actually in terms of its reception over here as well, clearly the project that Hollande was talking about was impossible. Um, just like uh, Mitterrand's in the early 80s was impossible. We talked about that on the show. You had people like Owen saying, uh, I've got somebody looking in. Yeah. Do we, not, do we stop the show or we wind it up? Okay, we'll wind it up. Um, okay, well, there you go. That's, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, for more on the Labour Party, I'm sure we'll have several shows on this between now and, God, next year. My name's Aaron Bastani. James, thank you very much. Thanks. You're listening to Navara FM on Resonance 104.4 FM. See you same time, same place next week. Bye.